So I had this conversation with a young couple. Oh, okay, we're still doing the intros. We had this conversation. I was sitting down with a young couple, and uh, it was premarital, so it was on the front end of any disagreements or, or difficulties that a lot of marriages can go through. I just want to put that out there. Uh, but as I was getting to know them, I asked them the question, um, you know, what, what are your interests in? And this, this young gal, she was a young teacher and had just thrown herself into her career. And she couldn't really answer the question what her interests or her hobbies were. And so I start suggesting, you know, are you, are you into music? Are, are you into sports? But she was so focused. She's like, oh, not really. No, no. I go, are, are you into food? Are you a foodie? And she says, yeah, yeah, I'm a foodie. I love food. But only the foods I like. Like, I don't like trying, like, new things. And I was like, ah, thinking to myself, pretty much by definition, you're not, you're, you're not a foodie. <laughs> but I let her just go with it, believing that she found some point of interest. And I would say this, most of the time that I go out to eat, it's because, uh, and there's lots of reasons, but the reason I really like going out to eat is usually I can find something that I can't create at home on my own. Now, I'm a serviceable cook. Like, I have proficiency, but I'm not great. It's sort of functional cooking. Um, But I like to go out because usually I can find something that I can't create that at home on my own. Now, we eat out for lots of reasons, don't we? I mean, sometimes it is for incompetence, and sometimes it's, let's be honest, just lazy. I don't feel like cooking tonight. Let's go out, or let's order, right? Or sometimes it's a special occasion. We eat out for lots of reasons, and we usually have places that we like to eat, and because at that place, there's something we like to order, right? So if you feel like a burger, do you kind of have the place you go to when you feel like a burger, when you feel like pizza, don't you have the pizza place you like to go to? It's just kind of how it works. Well, uh, I think when it comes to, when what we realize is that whether we're making it at home or whether we're going out for this one signature meal that we love, just because you have all the right ingredients and all the same ingredients and all the similar staff, all the similar prep time and mechanisms that go into making the dish, it does not mean that it'll taste the same every time. Have you noticed this? You're like, wow, this, so, something's, something's not as good this time around. And this happens a lot. And so what I'd like to do is suggest to you that when we talk about faith, specifically the working out of our salvation, I'd like to suggest to you that we can have all the right ingredients, go through all the right motions, and still be missing the mark. There's these moments that we have that we want to recapture, that we want to get back to, maybe when we felt closer to God. And just because we do all the same things, sometimes it doesn't produce the same, you know, uh, consistent kind of taste. Um, And the thing about a gourmet chef, per se, or, or, or an experienced palate, is that they can pull out sort of nuance, Right? Like a sommelier would be able to taste layers and and on the fifth layer pick out some oak or some pepper or plum. And you're like, yeah, I don't taste that. I taste red. I taste white. There's something about a sophisticated palate. And my point about bringing that up is salvation, I think, grows the same way um, as we develop an appetite for God's presence. 
the more of an appetite we have for God, the more hunger that we generate for God, the more I think we will be able to discern God's yeses and God's noes, God's prompts and God's leading. And that's why I think it's so important that we work out our salvation. Now, let me just say real quickly that there is a significant difference between what is an appetite and what is genuine hunger. Most of the time, especially in a first world uh, where I don't really go hungry. In fact, I have a stomach that is conditioned for snacks in between meals. And my stomach starts rumbling, not because it's starving, but because I've cultivated an appetite. And so what I'm talking about is cultivating an appetite for the things of God. Because I can live on one diet, but that diet isn't necessarily healthy for me. And so what we're talking about is putting the right ingredients together and cultivating the kind of appetite for God's presence. Now, a lot of times we use escapism to cultivate something that God said he would provide, whether it be pleasure or, or whether it, it, it be peace or whether it be comfort or, or whether it be joy. There are lots of things that we use to prop up what I think it is God wants to author in our lives. So here's something that's a total Lent passage that I want to look at. It's in John chapter 12. I'm going to encourage you to fire open maybe an app or your Bible because this will be, I want to, I want to kind of mine this passage. Jesus is in this moment with his disciples and he begins to predict his own death. Now, I don't know if you have any of these conversations with, say, your spouse, but if you bring up certain conversations, they hate it when you talk about it. So I'm like, hey, Laurel, like, would you want to marry someone, like, if I died? Like, who would you go after if I'm not around anymore? And you're like, could we not talk about this? I think in this moment, Jesus is having one of the conversations that the, the disciples are like, la, 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 la. Could you please stop talking about dying? We're with you. We're not going to let that happen. We've got your back. You're going to be our new deliverer like Moses was. And so Jesus dives into this kind of recurring prediction that the disciples just don't like, but mostly because they haven't developed sort of the right kind of appetite. And when we open up the passage in, in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20 through 22, it says, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, this was like the Super Bowl of the Jewish culture. They had come for Passover. They had joined with many Hebrews in this pilgrimage to have this extended celebration. This was huge, very climactic. But they paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they were, sir, we want to meet with Jesus. And Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask. Now, there's a couple of things that are kind of curious. Now, this is well tra- kind of traveled road for a lot of us who grew up and around the church, especially as you grow near to Resurrection Sunday. But, um, and Philip is an interesting character because we don't hear him mentioned a lot. But one of the things that's interesting out of this passage is these non-Jews, these Greeks, chose, of all the disciples, Philip. Because Philip had the only Greek name of the immediate followers of Jesus. All the other names were clear Jewish boys. But these Greeks found one of their own, likely because he could speak their language too. And so he has this moment where they pick him out of the crowd. Not accidentally, but likely because of at least his name stood out to them as, oh, he's one of us. 
So in this time where they, they begin to say, and they make a request, which when I first read it, I'm like, yeah, who wouldn't? We want to see Jesus. And I'm assuming you might not have thought it, but subconsciously you came to church today because you wanted to meet with the living Christ. You celebrate Easter because of some experience you have with the living Christ. Otherwise, it's just another Sunday in the spring. But the idea is we have this longing, what I would call a God-given hunger to meet with the living, risen Savior. This is what we're created for. And so they ask the question, we want, can we meet with him? And, and I would just say, well, of course, who doesn't want to meet with Jesus? But their question was actually a little bit more specific. Their question was, we actually want to have a private meeting with him. We want to have an interview with him. We have ideas specifically, I think, to how they can expand the, the ministry of Jesus in their own areas to non-Jews. And, and, and so the question is, can I meet with Jesus? What I think is fascinating about it is John takes the time to record that they want to meet with him, but he doesn't reveal what the contents of their conversation were. Again, well-traveled road. We've read this a lot. You might be familiar with this. And, and here, it, it, it strikes me as curious that John, the author of the book, gives an account that, hey, yeah, these non-Jews, they came and they asked if they could meet with Jesus. Kind of asked the question, well, what did they want to talk about? Except that John doesn't bother to record that. But he does record what Jesus goes on to say. Um, and, and so my point is this, is he regarded their coming as important, but not their conversation. So Jesus replies, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a parade or if you've ever been nominated for homecoming court or became the student body president, or if you had some moment of glory where, where it was just this time to just soak in maybe the applause or the attention or whatever the case might be, Jesus is talking about enter into his glory, which sounds like a victory lap, not an earthly demise. What he's talking about is his death on the cross. That doesn't sound like a great accomplishment. But Jesus, in moving this way by faithfulness and obedience, is going to encounter the cross. And so here's where he begins to predict. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat, remember, this is a farming region. These are agriculture people. They get this analogy. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and it dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care for nothing, uh, care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves, who serves me. And so Jesus' response suggests that these Greek Christians' purpose of the, wanting to offer was to offer new opportunities to do ministry to non-Jews. 
up until this point, the disciples were still viewing Jesus as part of their Hebraic deliverance and that they were going to, as a Hebrew nation, overthrow Rome like Moses helped lead and overthrow Egypt or at least deliver the people out. And so there's this new coming. And, and so Jesus has this kind of moment where he starts to go, oh my gosh, people are getting it. It's not my disciples, but people who have been irrevocably and eternally touched by the hope and the resurrection of Christ or the idea that Christ will come again are now, are now having this desire to spread the good news. Like this is... This is an advancement strategy. This is a growth strategy. These are outsiders who had not been allowed into the inner circle of what it meant to be a close follower of the Lord because they were not Jews. And now they're like, we're so bought into this. We're so changed by this hope that we want to participate in its expansion. What does Jesus respond? What does John record? He's saying, oh my goodness, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil. And so he refers to us as seeds, seeds that must spread because seeds do one thing, they grow into new life. See, somewhere along the line, I hope, my conviction, my calling is that somehow you would have received the seed of Jesus Christ as a possibility for new life. Not once and for all, but again and again. Not, not just as an event, but as a salvation that you get to work out in ever-increasing ways. That we don't just get to meet them, we get to know them. That we get to have this intimacy exchange over time and through experience. This is what Jesus begins to celebrate and why, I think, he predicts his death as, as imminent. So Jesus clarifies what expanding or uh, what winning looks like, and it's that seeds would spread. And in order for the mission of Christ to be multiplied, more voices are going to need to be raised up. More voices. Not just professional clergy, not just trained rabbi, people who can articulate the difference that Christ is making in them and provide some kind of hope for those who have none. Verse 27, my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, and this is the humanity of Christ that you cannot miss, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason that I came. Does Jesus, in his humanity, want to give his life and end up at the cross? No. That, that would not be anyone's first choice. And yet he says, except that this is the reason I came, is to give myself to bring glory to my Father in heaven and for you and I. So, then a voice, uh, then it says, Father, bring glory to your name. In other words, it's not about me. My life is not my own. My life is in my Father in heaven. And then his Father in heaven speaks, which, come on now, I would love to hear that audible voice. Would you not? I mean, having a little quiet time and you get the voice of the Lord crying out. And I'm like, good night. 
And, and it says, then the voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name. I wish I had like a Morgan Freeman voice. And I will do so again. So he brings glory because his son is being faithful and obedient in his humanity to say, my life is not my own. But then he's going to do it again when his son comes back for the restoration of all that is broken in this world. And so when the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder. And while others declared an angel had spoken to him, then Jesus told them, well, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. I'm like, I'll, I'll take it, but you make it sound bad. <laughs> uh, and I would just say this. You and I are enamored with the grandeur of God, are we not? We are fascinated with miracles and things that only God can do. And don't we not end up praying for signs? And don't we not maybe even fuel doubt and skepticism and cynicism when we see maybe silence or, 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 or lack of or hypocrisy? And so what, what we are enamored with is this idea that God is going to show God in very evident ways very outspoken ways, very audible ways. But Jesus goes, well, if that helps you, that's good. Because that was for you. That wasn't for me. I've got my calling. I know the mission. I know how this thing ends. But he throws us this bone and so, or throws up this, this opportunity to hear in a very grandiose way. And so um, I think that when we're so enamored with the outward signs of God, what ends up happening is that we can miss some of the subtle, ordinary but extraordinary evidence of the faithfulness of God. It's sort of like asking the question, if you had a good relationship with your mother, what makes your mom so amazing? Is it, is it because she threw you really great birthday parties? Is it because she had like, she was an amazing cook or she was really good looking? You'd like, no, that would kind of miss the point. Or was it because she was just an amazing, faithful servant who cared for you, whether you deserved it or had a good attitude or not? And this is how it is with God. Our heavenly father, our spiritual parent, has this desire to be intimately connected with our lives, except our appetite is usually for something greater and grandiose that we miss the faithfulness, the provision, the protection, how he sustains us, the strength for today, the last breath we just took. And so my encouragement is that God is for us, but we need to see the evidence of God's grace and provision and, and his care. And, and, and all of this begs the question, and this gets back to the appetite, is that what is all of this faithfulness of God producing in me? In other words, what does loss and struggle, what is heartbreak and doubt, what does that produce in me? Because God's not threatened by it, but he invites us to a kind of um, courtship that wants to solve and heal and, and address all of those kinds of things. And so the question I'm kind of landing on is what can we do to develop an appetite for God? Um, and I would say, well, you have already a lot of what you need. See, I think salvation, because over the last few weeks we've been talking about salvation as a movement, not just as an event, but salvation in some ways, I, I know this is kind of a weird analogy, salvation can be like being a college student. 
right? Once you arrive in college, no one's getting you out of bed anymore. No one really even takes attendance. It's 100% on you to be a grown-up and decide, am I going to go to class and am I going to do well? Because once you become a college student, someone's probably paying the bill for you, likely, or you're going into debt. But you have this idea that, yeah, everyone wants to do good. Not everyone really wants to put out the effort, right? And so we can all go through the motions. And the reality is it's not if, but it's when the tests come, will we be ready? Now, when I study for a final or a midterm, there was always this sense that there's more I could be preparing. There's more I could I wish I had more time. So it's not if, but it's when the tests come. And what we find is that God is faithful. He's in the midst of it, in the storm, um, and it doesn't have to derail us. We can wrestle through doubts um, and discouragement, and it doesn't have to derail us. We, We can have these moments because we're developing an appetite for the presence of God so that when we go through difficulties, it doesn't have to be the end of us. And so this last year has been a year where it has been a huge disruption in a lot of ways. In fact, this last year, I would say, has been almost in some ways put on complete hold. And in other ways, it's been more demanding than ever. This last year has, has made us very aware of, of how fragile life can be. And so... Um, I think about maybe one area that's possibly most impacted isn't necessarily our finances, though there's been some economic struggles, for sure. It's not necessarily our relationships, though people haven't seen loved ones for going on a couple years now. It's not necessarily that my, my, my company isn't on the same trajectory and I'm not on the same career advancement path, um, or even really the, the sort of vulnerability we're experiencing with personal health. I think the biggest casualty over this last year has been faith. And you're like, well, how, I mean... How can you put faith up when there's so many other things that are against racism or against... And I'm saying, I, I just don't think you move past any of these issues without solving a kind of faith equation for your own life. And so in this picture, um, I've been doing some research. I've been listening to podcasts and I've been trying to figure out what's going on, not just with Mission Hills, but the church. And um, this... This gentleman, um, who's one of an influential leader, and he was giving this analogy of this beach. And every year, his family would return to this beach on the Gulf. And, and every year, they could see evidence that this beach was eroding. And um, if you just visited, you would just show up and go, what a lovely beach. But you wouldn't notice that it's eroding and changing. But the locals knew it. And then, wouldn't you know it, a huge storm blows in, a hurricane-style storm. And the beach is just eliminated. And what he was saying is, this is what's happening to the church. Capital C. For the last 25 years, the church has been in decline. And COVID is now the thing that is wiping it out. It's the storm that's hit. And what he's saying is, listen, there will always be a market for church. There will always be people who 
call themselves Christians and want to go. As long as there's Easter and Christmas, people are going to want to come to church. As long as there's crisis and doubt and we face uh, a terminal life on earth, people are going to ask eternal questions. But what he's arguing is the way we've created church as a disciple-making organism has to change. Can I just be speculative here, and I might offend some people, but I have found that in, in 25 years of working at a church, I've heard lots of excuses about why people can't come, and I've second-guessed lots of priorities in people's lives. But at the end of the day, you just make yourself available because you know that faith is the constant, that, that, that I'm going to give myself to something everlasting and eternal. But now with COVID, it has become the new get-out-of-church-free card. It has become the easiest thing to be able to say, I'm, I'm, which is fine, but here's the problem. A third of practicing Christians, not nominal Christians, uh, a study was done by the Barna Institute, that a third of practicing Christians aren't even logging on. And it's speculated now that, that when we do return, when herd immunity or, or, or some kind of uh, vaccine is, is populated enough, when we return... Churches will return at 60% of pre-COVID numbers. Now, I understand there are lots of things why online church doesn't work. That's, that's a real thing. So for those of you at home and have tuned in with us, God bless you. Stay strong. I, I love that you're with us. But I got to say, there's something about being in person that, that, that doesn't always transfer online. And if you've sat online, you, you know that. They're even saying that 20 to 30% of pastors are going to be either resigning or out of work by this fall. Faith has come under huge attack, but it's not just because of COVID. It's been what's happening for the last 25 years of decline. And what I'm suggesting is we have lost uh, a, a hunger for, for, for the presence of God. We have not done enough to develop an appetite for the presence of God on our own. Now, Mission Hills was started five years ago almost as a reaction to what the church has become. Mission Hills was started with a vision, a dream, that we could maybe be a church that has a lower overhead, that we weren't going to just spend on capital improvements and things like that, but we could, we could be a church that wasn't just like Sunday go to church. It would be more like a laboratory where we get to practice or experiment with faith, right? This has always been the dream. But I got to tell you, one of the most discouraging things for me over the last year was that I started casting vision for, we don't want to have just a Sunday go to church faith. But guess what? We don't even have that anymore. We, we started logging in. And, and, and trying to do faith online. We don't even have to show the, the effort to get dressed, to do our hair, to brush our teeth, and to go to church. It's just getting easier and easier. And my concern is this does not make disciples. And this is why Jesus came. The reason he could celebrate the fact of his death, the reason he could be fueled in his faithfulness and obedience is because he sensed that the gospel was going forth, seeds were beginning to germinate, and his time has come. Guess what? 2,000 years later, you're part of the seed work. And the seed work isn't just getting to get here. It's, it's what do we do when we're not here? 
and living the life that says, I care and live for the sake of others. This is what I think it means to cultivate this, this sort of appetite. And so my concern is what do people do with, with adversity, um, with quarantine, with economic downturn, with hyper-isolation, with health concerns? Because Christ is in all of it, but it's so easy to not sense God in any of it or to miss the subtle ways in which God is revealing himself. And so how is it that you are actively being sensitized to the presence of God? Because that's on all of us. I mean, as church services go, as preaching goes, there's going to be some good recipes and some bad ones, you know. You're going to come back next week and you're like, yeah, (laughs) that didn't taste as good as it tasted last week. And you're like, yeah, because just because you have all the right ingredients and you try and do all the right steps, our salvation is not just simply add water and stir and throw in the oven. Like there is something about this that it has to invite an appetite for God's Holy Spirit so that our hearts can be increasingly resensitized. So I want to pray with you. We're going to have just a closing worship song here. And I want to pray a prayer with you that allows for a little bit more extended prayer time. Um, Justin and the band are going to lead us in a song, and I don't really care if you stand with it or sing along with it, because mostly I would like to just have you close your eyes with me. And if it helps you to hear the words, if it helps you to sing the words, God bless you, do it. But I just want you to pray with me. And if you'd bow your heads, I want to pray about hunger. I want to pray about the things we hunger for. I want to pray about what the things maybe we need to hunger. And if I was super honest, there was a time, and if you ask any kid where they want to go for their birthday, it it would have been Chuck E. Cheese. If I'm being really honest, McDonald's was my go-to for years. But somehow my palate changed. I can't remember the last time I had a Big Mac. Spiritually, we need to cultivate a kind of hunger and, and, and a palate for God to do a new work. We need a new diet. And the reason we need a new diet is maybe because you can't go back because you've tasted better. God, we pray for a kind of hunger tonight. I pray that you would speak to us about the areas of our lives where maybe we're, we're numbing the pain. Maybe where we have just grown complacent or cold. Would you bring your Holy Spirit a kind of revelation, uh, a kind of prompt, a kind of understanding of, of where we might have lost our first love? I pray for a growing awareness of your presence in our life. So I would just encourage you as we sing this song now to first pray for hunger. Pray for the joy of, uh, of thy salvation to be restored unto you. And ask the Lord if there's anything that might be keeping you. And then pray for our church. We have taken some hits. It has been a challenging year. And we're not through it yet. But I believe this transition can be transformational if we let it. And we can be the seeds 
the disciples that reimagine what church needs to look like. And we can practice a living faith with great intentionality and it it not only transforms us or connects us with the heart of God, it, it leverages faith for the benefit of others and we're able to pass it on to those closest. I mean, that just sounds like the makings of revival. And so let's pray a prayer for revival in our own hearts and that God might use little old Mission Hills Church to do something revolutionary.